0: Morning. It's good to be in the house of the Lord, isn't it? I, I'm be honest. I'm getting emotional. What great worship, right? What a great story of God's redemption, men. I gotta get a hold of myself here. And I'm, I never cease to be amazed how God can orchestrate things. Um, I have very little to do with what happens before, and I know there's some really talented people who who know what I'm preaching ahead of time. But I I can't help but think there's there's kind of a divine appointment for what I'm speaking on today and everything that's happened. And I'm going to just pray, so hopefully I get a hold of my emotions here. But let's pray before we open the word. Lord, we love you. It's amazing to see how you can orchestrate things in ways that we can't comprehend. We were lost. We didn't find you. You found us. And Lord, we were found. And that's so true because at times we can forget that. And I just pray that you'll help us to remember that today. Lord, give us calmness of spirit. Give us open hearts and give us eyes to see. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. Well, so we're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians. And um, for those of you who maybe were away for the summer because you have a house up north or something like that, or weren't able to follow online, we've been encouraging you to be reading through the book of Ephesians um, and uh, if you can read one chapter a day, you can track with Ephesians. Um, if you miss a day, you can always make it up on that one off day for that day of the week, since there's six chapters to the book. And it's been fun to hear some people talk about their experience and saying, oh, you know what, I've been reading through the book, and I see some connections later in the book that are from what you're talking about in the beginning of the book. And so it's, it's really neat. By the way, could someone give me a tissue? I need to blow my nose. I'm so sorry. It's just <laughs> the emotions. Anybody? I should have had them myself. I know somebody, some mother here has a tissue. <laughs> and you'll probably want to turn the mic down for this. This is so embarrassing. <laughs> oh, bless you, Melanie. <sighs> wow. All right. My poor wife just embarrassed her deeply. <laughs> That's for you, babe. That's for you. Okay, anyway, where was I? All right, we've been found, right? What a great song. Um, I'm gonna completely change my introduction because I think that it fits. Um, as believers, right, we believe in grace. Right? We believe that we needed grace and we continue to need grace, right? That, that the Christian walk is a walk. It didn't start by grace and finish by my works, correct? It started with grace It continues with grace, and it finishes with grace. It's grace through and through. There's nothing that we bring to the table. There's nothing that we bring to the table. And God graciously finds us when we're lost, pulls us out of the muck and the mire, cleans us off, and then sets us up for a beautiful walk of holiness. So let me just kind of, again, totally off the script for me here, but... um, let me just share a little bit of my walk when I went to seminary. Um, when I went to seminary, I had about, I had already had four years of Bible college, and then um, in, a, in about a four year span, they just cram all this theological knowledge into your head and as First Corinthians talks about, knowledge can puff up, and one of the dangers of doing theological education that way is that you, you get your head literally crammed full of all this knowledge and Without even realizing you can kind of walk and think, you can kind of think, hey, I've, got, I've kind of got this thing settled. I kind of know things, <laughs> right? And, and there's, a, there's a subtle kind of a pride that can develop in us. Right now, I think we all have different areas that we can struggle with on that. But each one of us, and we're going to look at different areas of that this morning, but there's all sorts of areas where we can kind of struggle with forgetting that it's all about grace It's not about us. And just to be really honest, it it took probably about 15 years for the Lord to just kind of beat some of that out of me. And I had a, a, a Dr. King was a colleague. He was a professor first, and then a colleague later when I was teaching at the college. And he he would, like, I was that angry theologian, and I didn't even know it. And I probably would have died of a heart attack because of the tension, because I was angry at everything, every bad teaching, everything out there. And and God really kind of graciously sometimes knocked the rough edges off, sometimes massaged it out of me. But Dr. King was a man in my life. He would call me into the office, and I knew I was in trouble every time he called me. And I didn't have to go, but he was my colleague, and I respected him and a a mentor. And he'd go, Dave, Dave, why are you so frustrated? Why are you so upset? And I'm like, I'm not upset. (laughs) Right? We're so self-blind sometimes. He's like, I'm not upset. This is not me. This is, this is their problem. And this is, to give you what Jim King was like, Jim King was very similar to my story. He came, he was a very, very legalistic missionary, came back from the field, just God broke him and taught him, right? And to give you an idea, he had wind chimes in his office with a fan on the wind chime. So it drove me nuts sometimes because he'd come in and be like, tinkle, 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 twinkle, right? And I'd be like, I don't want this to be calm. I want to be angry, And over time, over time, over time, God used that man and others in, in, in my life to just break me of pride. And break me of thinking that I knew better than everybody else. Which is very arrogant, is it not? You don't realize, and again, in the moment you don't think, you're just thinking truth, right? Then you go, okay, but there's this thing called love that goes along with truth, right? Speaking the truth in love. There's so many people in my life that help with that. So, but this is just kind of my experience. And, and as we've been talking through the book of Ephesians, some of you probably are getting tired of me pointing out the you-we distinction in chapter 1 and chapter 2. But now this is going to come to full fruition. So if we're in chapter 2 of Ephesians, and for those of you who have a blue Bible, that's page 240, sorry, 1242 is Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Now, we already looked at that last time, so I'm going to do a weird thing. I'm going to re-preach a passage that I preached the last time I spoke. Now, the reason is because this passage is so famous for its description of God's gracious salvation. And most people preach it as a what I would call a salvation passage. That It's a passage that seems to be calling people to repent and turn their life over to Christ and receive his grace. But that's not, not actually the purpose because... If you read it carefully, it's actually written to people who have been saved by grace. So it's not calling people to salvation, although it's a really good place to take people to explain salvation. It's so clear there. But it's actually talking to people. If you're here and you're a believer, it's talking to you. It's talking to me. And it's pointing something out. And this is where that we-you distinction is going to come Come to bear. So let me give you kind of the big thing that I'm talking about today. For those of us who have received grace, those of us who have received grace, we need to show grace to others. Right? We receive grace. Why do we turn around and then don't show grace? So those of us who have received grace, we need to show grace for others. So here's the fundamental problem in the book of Ephesians the believers in Ephesians were split into two different groups. There was the Jewish believers and then there was the Gentile believers. And we talked before about how different those two groups would be. The Jewish believers really, before they were believers, they were to keep themselves separate from non-believers, from non-Jews. right? And so there would be a kind of a, Real discomfort. The dress would be different. The diet would be different. Everything about what they did was foreign, literally, to the Gentile believers. So then God calls them together and says, guess what? We're bringing you together into this one thing called the church. And we're going to make you unified. Well... That was great in theory, but was taking some time to work out. So Paul is challenging them. So, um, and he does it in a very rhetorically, just really sharp, smart way. But he starts off in chapter 1 by only talking to the we, Right? We were saved, we were chosen, we were called, we were redeemed. And those of you who remember that series, we pointed out that the first part of, of chapter 1, he's only talking to the we, and then he shifts to this you and includes them. And the we, let's, I just want to demonstrate this. So in chapter 1, verse 12, he helps to define the we. He says, so that we who were the first to hope in the Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So the first, historically, the first people to hope in the Messiah were the Jewish people. So he says, look, you Jewish believers, you've been included in all these things. And then finally in verses 13 and 14, he includes the Gentiles. So he says in verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in the Christ might be to the praise of his glory. And then he says, in whom you also, you Gentiles also. Now there's another verse that demonstrates this even more clearly, and that's Chapter 2, verse 11. He says this. Remember that at that time, or at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh. So there's this you-we distinction. And Paul kind of pulls along the Jewish believers and talks about their privilege. And then goes, oh, by the way, these Gentiles are included too. Why would he say that? So what we're going to find is that this problem. So I want to state this problem clearly. Jewish Christians in Ephesus had developed an arrogance based upon perceived superiority of their morality and history. Did you catch that? The Jewish believers in Ephesus had developed an arrogance. And that arrogance was based on their perceived superiority of their morality and their history. And and I think what Paul actually does as he's talking through chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, is he kind of plays off of that. And you'll see what I mean in a second. So what I want to do today is is talk about Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 in kind of four stages. So first, I want to talk about their perceived superiority, their perceived superiority. Then I want to talk about their ignored reality, chapter 2, verse 3. Then I want to talk about God's provision of grace for all. And then I want to talk about God's purpose in offering this grace. Okay, so that's the four movements of where we're headed today. So let's look at their perceived superiority. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. Notice he starts off with you here. So he's talking to Gentile believers. And he says this, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. So to a Jewish Gentile mixed audience, he goes first to the Jewish, to the Gentiles. And he goes, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And I actually think what Paul's trying to do here is to get the Jew the Gen, excuse me the Jewish believers to go, yeah, that's them. Look how bad they were. And I have a good reason for saying this. I'll show you in a second. But I think what he's trying to do is go, is to kind of toy around with the, the, Gent, the Jewish believers who are looking down their noses at Gentile believers and go, yeah, that's right. You were those Gentiles and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And you had all these problems and you were following satanic doctrine and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you walked formerly following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience now if you're an arrogant person and you hear that as a description of someone you're arrogant towards, doesn't that just make your heart go, yeah, 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 you scored, score the point, you get him, talk harder, Paul, you get him, Paul, you got it. So that's the perceived superiority. And I'm, I'm going to skip ahead just a second to the End of chapter, uh, not chapter. Uh, end of verse three, and I want you to see something that that I think helps really cement this thing home, because he says this in verse three. Among whom we all, so now he's talking to the Gentile believers. Excuse me, the Jewish believers. I keep saying that wrong. We once lived in our passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, even like the rest of mankind. Now. That term that's translated, even like the rest of mankind, the of mankind is probably in your translation, if it has that, in italics. Anybody have that in italics? If you do, it's because the term of mankind is not part of the t- text. The term is actually, even as the rest, okay? Now that's important, I want you to really highlight that. So even as the rest, that word, so this is going back to those who come from an older age in education. Does anybody know the term hoi polloi from, from your childhood? The hoi polloi were the Greek rabble. The Greeks had the aristocrats and they had the hoi polloi, the rest the Greek aristocrats would look down their nose at the common folk and say, oh, those are just the common folk. And they would have this kind of an attitude towards them, the hoi polloi, the many. That, that word literally just means the many. It's the many rabble that fill in, and us aristocrats, we run things. This is kind of the Jewish equivalent of hoi polloi, okay? So when... He says that you were children of wrath, even as the rest. Paul is using this pretty ironically here by saying, look, you are looking down your noses at these Gentiles, and you're calling them the rest, the rabble, the hoi polloi, the common folks, and you're looking down your nose at them. You're just like them. Let me take you to a passage I think will demonstrate this. And if you're a little suspicious that that might not be true, that's okay. Follow with me. Go to Luke for a second. And I... I, Luke chapter 18, Luke chapter 18, and we're going to look at verses 9 through 14 really quickly to define this word. Luke chapter 18, don't want to go to Acts, I want to go to Luke. There we go. So this is actually a fairly f- famous parable, but I want you to know why Jesus says it. He says this. This is he being Jesus. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay? So, Paul, excuse me, Jesus writes this, uh, speaks this parable to those who are looking down their nose at others and looking at them with contempt. Okay, so let's keep going. What's he say? He says this, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. That's the rest. That's the word there, the rest. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes. For all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see? So the text is very clear. The Pharisee is looking down his nose with contempt at this tax collector. And he says, I'm glad I'm not like the rest. Do you see? The hoi polloi, the remaining, the rest. So that, I think, helps us define and understand how Paul uses this back in Ephesians chapter 2. So let's jump back to our main text for the day in Ephesians chapter 2. So their perceived superiority. They thought of themselves better than these Gentile Christians. They had a better history with God. They received the Ten Commandments. They received the law. They received the prophets. Now, let's not look at how they treated the prophets or how they responded to the law. But they got it, right? That was an advantage. There's a moral superiority. They thought themselves better because they grew up hearing the right words, hearing the right things, not doing the wrong things, and somehow that allowed them to think that they weren't just as lost and just as in need of grace as everybody else. So that's the perceived superiority. Well, what about their ignored reality? Well, verse 3. Ephesians 2, verse 3, he says this. Among whom we all. Any exception to that for Jewish believers? Were there some that didn't need this? Were there some that didn't live like this? Were there some that didn't fall into this category? No, he says we all. So we, Jewish believers, he's speaking to his followers there that are like him, Jewish. We lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of the body and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath. That's not too soft. Even as the rest. And that's why I think this term is so powerful. Because he says, look, you are children of wrath just like the rest. Those who you think are. Are worse than you and those who you consider the rabble and those who you're looking down your nose at with arrogance they're just as lost now for us today we don't really have the jew gentile distinction in our church but there are people who come from religious backgrounds among us how many grew up in christian homes and grew up okay i grew up on the mission field right christian home my whole life Is there a potential for us to be arrogant because we haven't, maybe some of us haven't gone through some of the sins that other people have gone through? Is that a potential for arrogance? Sure, absolutely. But do we need grace just like the rest? In fact, what's really interesting if you think back to Luke, it's almost like the person who is religious, the Pharisee there, That text says that person went away, uh, I'm sorry, that that the tax collector went away justified and the Pharisee didn't. So if you grew up in a church and you think that you're good because you grew up in that church, have you accepted God's grace? Are you even a recipient of God's grace? It took me years of, I was actually at Bible college when I realized that I personally grew up in a church thought I knew Christ, but didn't. And I turned my life over and repented and became a believer. Maybe some of you are like that today. So they ignored the reality that they were lost just like the Gentile believers. And so then he goes into this deep explanation of salvation. right? And this is why this is so famous as a passage to take people to if you want to lead them to Christ. And this is a worthwhile passage to do that. However, there's more going on here. Well, let's look why I say that. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Notice he's not talking to people who have yet to embrace, but he's talking to people who have embraced. And he's reminding them of the reality that they were living through. You are a believer now, but you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Then God placed his love on you. Then God saved you. And then he says this statement, which everybody should know. By grace, you have been saved. As if it's not enough to say what he's been saying so far. He goes, look, you're saved by grace. You're sitting here looking down your nose at other people, and you've been saved by grace. Irony? Contradiction? you see where we need to fix some things? And that's what Paul and God are calling us to do. And he says, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Why? So that in the age to come, He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. So, if you're a believer here today, you have a future with God. And in that age to come, we're not going to be extolling the greatness of our obedience. We're going to continue to extol the greatness of God's grace in our lives. we're not going to be extolling the greatness of our obedience, but we're going to be extolling the greatness of God's grace as he helps us to follow and obey him more. That's a big difference. It's a big difference. And then he says it again, for by grace you have been saved. Notice it's past tense, you have been saved. It's by grace. Not as a result of works. So that no one should boast. Oh, maybe that's why he's included that. So here, here, here's the thing. It's easy for us to go, oh yeah, those those first century believers, they were arrogant and they were boasting about salvation. But let me make a suggestion that every time we forget about God's grace in our lives and we look down our nose at someone else, it's as if we're boasting about our salvation. Why? Because we're looking at them as if they need grace, but we don't. When we know too well that we too are recipients of grace. So that's God's provision of grace for all. Now I'd be remiss, I would be remiss if we talked about this passage and I didn't offer for anybody here who does not know Christ the Savior, to come receive God's grace. Maybe you've been working really, really hard to try to please God, and it just isn't working out because you fail over and over again, and you feel that failure. Guess what? Quit trying and receive his grace. Quit working and receive his grace and receive his Holy Spirit, who will then make that obedience possible, and not just possible, will do it in you. He will complete the work of Christ Jesus in you. So if you want to have that conversation today, we would love to speak with you after the service or during the picnic, whenever. But we would love to do that. Now, the last set verse here, verse 10, talks about the purpose. And this is this is such a beautiful thing because one of the things that I um, I have always wanted to try to do is to show the joy of holiness. right? That there's joy in holiness. Our world tries to tell us the way to happiness is to peel away all the constraints of society and whatever the church or whatever people around you are telling you find whatever floats your boat and do that and that's going to give you great joy. And that's the lie from Satan. There's great misery in selfishness. There's great misery in unrighteousness. And there's joy in holiness. And there's joy in walking our lives knowing that God has this great set of works for us to complete. Because look what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. God's crafting us, making us more like his image created in Christ Jesus for the purpose for good works, right? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What a great truth, right? So today, when I woke up, I didn't, probably should have, but I could have said to myself, today is a day that God's created great works or good works for me to do. And let's find out, let's figure out what those are. Let's find out what God has in store for me, what good works he has prepared for me to do today. What a joyful life to be able to, oh, that was it. God prepared a conversation that I could have with a coworker. God prepared the ability and time that I had, didn't have any appointments, so I could stop and help this lady on the side of the road fix her tire. God prepared this for me. God prepared that for me. God prepared this for me. We can live a joyful life of holiness Discovering what God is graciously calling us to do. Ultimately, that's why I think Paul wrote 2, 1 through 10. Yes, it's a great salvation passage, but I think he's calling us to humility and embracing the truth that I will never outlive my need for God's grace. I will never outlive my need for God's grace. All right, we're gonna spend a little bit of chunk of time here. Just because I'm done with the message part doesn't mean I'm done with the application part. We're gonna spend a few minutes on application here. Have you become arrogant? Have I become arrogant? Have we become arrogant? Well, let's look at some categories. Intellectual. Look, we live in a really smart town, okay? We do. Uh, the, the, The... The aggregate brains in a town like Midland is pretty scary, right? But do you know that? I mean, do you know know it? Like, oh, I know I'm smart, right? Are we tempted to kind of look down our nose at people who don't have that education that we have, that intellect that we might have, that great job that uses your brain that you might have? That's that's probably a a temptation for lots of congregants in a town like Midland. (sighs) Who gave us that brain? Right? Who gave you that brain? And let's let's remind you that you're one car accident away from not having that intellect anymore. Or one stroke away from not having that intellect anymore. Right? That's God's grace in our lives. That's God's grace. Again, here's, here's my goal today. My goal is to try to find some way that I offend everyone here. So just get ready, okay? Because I, I need it, right? Now, please don't, don't understand. I don't believe that as, you know, we're up here and we're trying to beat the sheep. God says, feed the sheep. But I'm not trying to beat everybody. But if I, you know, if I shotgun it, it's, something's gonna hit you today, hopefully. Okay, because we all need reminded of this, correct? And I, I need reminded of this. All right, so the next one I'm not going to talk a lot about because we'll talk about this next week, but racial. Racial. We live in a very, very testy time racially. There is no room for racism within God's church. Amen? Yeah. So I'm not skipping over it because I don't think it's ever an issue, but it's, we'll talk about that next week. How about fiscal? Fiscal. Look, again, a place like that, like I've, so I've kind of grew up in a lower middle class family and never been a part of a kind of an upper middle class community. And the kind of stuff that you guys talk about just blows my mind sometime. Like donor assisted fund. I said it wrong, I know it, but donor assisted fund or, right? You guys, there's all sorts of really cool fiscal things because you guys, Many of you have these great jobs and you have these opportunities and you have tax experts that help you with these things. Is it possible that you're unintentionally looking down your nose at people who don't have as much money as you? Do you see your money as God's gift to you to do good works with it? Yes, you have to take care of your family. Yes, that's important. But is there... Possible, possibly some fiscal arrogance in your life. How about this: artistic or athletic talent? Right, where did you get that talent from? Look, we have some incredibly talented people, right, in the church, and some of you come from incredibly talented athletic backgrounds, right? Now, every, I'll just testimony for me: everybody that I Seem to come in grips with, come to uh, contact with from this church who have some of these backgrounds that have these talents, are overwhelmingly humble. But here and here, is it there? Are you able to look at those gifts that you've received from God and go, those are God's gifts to me, and give me an opportunity to serve the Lord and have a great influence with those things? So talent and athletic. So I coach volleyball for a living, but it's not because I was the world's greatest athlete. Um, God taught me very young, but I'm not the most athletic person in the world. Division three college, if that tells you anything. <laughs> but even then, I had to go through a moment at the small... You know, because we all have these ponds, and when you get big in your pond, you kind of think highly of yourself. And the guy named that taught me that I was not i was just a very, very small fish in a small pond, was Peter Wong. So I had a pretty d- d- decent jump, but Peter Wong came in uh, an inch shorter than me, but 10 inches more of a jump than I had. And suddenly I wasn't the star on the dinky small college club volleyball team anymore. And that was a good experience for me. Like, yeah, because I was thinking, oh, I'm pretty good. Nope. No, you're not. No, you're not. It was good. good experience. How about this, theological, theological arrogance, right? I think this was the hardest lesson for me to learn personally was that, you know, eventually what I found was people who disagree with me theologically usually have a pretty good reason to disagree with me theologically. And sometimes it's like I read this passage differently and I read that passage differently and that takes us in kind of two different directions and they go to a different church because of that and I go to a different church because of that. And that's okay. It's okay. It's okay to theologically disagree with people. Right? I struggled with because I thought I knew. Oh, I knew. Why? Because I knew. Why? Because I had a theological degree. I had Bible study. God had given me an ability to work with the text and enjoy doing that. And I used to teach people how to do that. And... But thankfully, over time, God healed me of that. Cured me of that. And sometimes knocked some rough edges that, off me that way. It was good. It was good. How about political? Ooh. Okay. Well, I'm a... I'm a... I'm, see, I don't even need to use words, right? I just have to go... You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Can we be humble believers... Who manifest and show God's grace despite differences? I think God calls us to do that. And yes, yes, there are things like we're dealing with an amazing topic this morning. Marty did such a good job of, exploring, of introducing that. We're dealing with an issue like abortion. Is it politics? Kind of, but what is it really? It's morality. It's biblical morality. So I'm not suggesting that we don't talk about anything that's deemed political. But notice what we're doing. We're really not talking politics. We're actually talking about helping people deal with unwanted pregnancies. And even places like our place in town helps people who've gone through abortion recover from that trauma. How about moral? And this is probably the easiest one for us to do. It's like, if you've you've been living the Christian life for a while, you've got some pretty good habits built up, right, and you're habituated to righteousness in some ways, and sometimes you may be making really good choices and may not even think about it just because it's habit. Does that give you the right to look down your nose at others who struggle? All right, so let me, now let me see, let me really push you a little bit here, okay? Whatever you think is the morally worst person that you can see, and somehow you can read it all over them, have them sit down right next to you in church next week. How are you, you going to handle that? How am I going to handle that? You, like, you take your worst sin, whatever you think that is, right, and, and somebody who is just callously practicing that, and sit them down right next to you in church. I'm not talking about a fellow believer, I'm talking about an unbeliever. How are you going to handle that? Are you going to look to them after the service and go, what are you doing here? So I I really want to kind of give you some two terms that I think will be really helpful. Because we live in a culture that's telling us not to confront any sin. So what I'm not talking about here is becoming so wishy-washy that we don't call sin, sin. But what I'm saying is if there's a sinful person that walks into church, a sinful person like us walks into the church, how do we handle it? Do we welcome them? So let me give you two terms, and I think it will actually help with our culture. So the first one I want to give you is to accept. Okay, And I'm going to call this a good term. To accept is to show God's love, treating people with kindness and respect, despite any sins that that person struggles with. We can do this because we know that we need God's grace just as much as everyone else. Okay, This is not what the world is calling us to do right now, though. They call us to do that plus affirm. And this is a term that I'm going to suggest that we need to avoid. To affirm is to approve of someone's sinful choice or choices despite what scriptures teach. Do you see the difference? As believers, we need to accept people who are sinners. And we need to show them the love and dignity that they deserve as children made in the image of God but we can never affirm, we can never affirm. We can accept, we can welcome, but we can never affirm. And let me, and this is, this is where I'm gonna share my opinion once. I try to make a very big distinction when I'm trying to preach and my opinion, but let me share my opinion. It's been influenced by some others and someone said something similar to this and I couldn't find the source, so forgive me if I'm, I'm not plagiarizing, I'm giving credit to somebody. Okay, so, And it's not a quote, it's just a paraphrase, and I totally agree with it. So here it is. In my opinion, the churches who thrive in the next 20 years will be those churches who are able to understand and live out the difference between affirming and accepting. Churches who affirm are fundamentally changing the gospel message. However, those who do not affirm but accept and welcome sinners into their midst, calling them to repentance will be able to thrive in a world that is increasingly suffering from its own sinful choices. Do you see? So let's go back for a second. God found us, pulled us up out of the muck and mire, and changed us. There's no room for us turning that back and looking at other people and going, I was saved by grace, so I'm going to look down at you because you're worse than I was. There's no room for that. There's no room for that. So let's be the kind of church that aff- I said affirm- accepts people and welcomes them into our midst and helps them to change without becoming the kind of church that loses its saltiness by affirming. Hopefully that helps. Hopefully that helps. Let's pray. Wow, well, your word is powerful and it's life changing and it's convicting Lord we want to be salt and light in this world we want to be the kind of church that welcomes everybody the kind of church that welcomes them and encourages them to follow you and to receive your grace at the same time Lord help us never to become the kind of church that affirms sin Help us to call sin, sin, but help us to lovingly teach people the difference. But Lord, we would ask that you start first and foremost with us. Teach us. Teach us to love. Teach us to accept. Teach us to be the kind of people that represent you well in the world. And I pray this in Jesus' name.